My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse, I said, why you want to show up now? Just when the heart of my life was getting good. I'll give you one more chance. Walk on out of the door, yeah. Get your ass to getting where the getting is good. Hello, fans, and welcome again to another episode of Euripides Humanities. This is your host, Aaron Odom, and I have a very special guest today, an old, old friend of mine who we just figured out that we probably haven't seen each other or talked to each other in 20 years. It is my pleasure today to introduce from Topeka, Kansas, drama therapist, Karen Knappenberger. Hi, Karen. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. I'm so <laughs> glad to have you. So tell me about this. Like when we were in school, you know, we were getting kind of our foundational theater education and you went to, was it K-State? Yep. Kansas State. Mm -hmm. And ended up getting into drama therapy. Tell us a little bit about what that is. I always tell people that a lot like how therapy retrains the brain, how to think. Drama therapy also works on those other systems in the body. And so we know that when we experience an emotion, just like an actor or taking on a role, like we, we wear our emotions differently and we feel them differently. And so drama therapy works with individuals to help understand how their body works, oh, wow. both in a educational setting and in a therapeutic setting. And so it's kind of bringing all of, there's a lot of different theories. You can go to the nadta.org website to learn all of these. So this is just the nutshell, but it's an, it's an opportunity for people to really practice the new way of thinking within their body. It's, oh, wow. it's what actors do all the time. So it's, it's right, literally right. acting for life. <laughs> now I've actually gone through therapy a couple different times. One of my therapists was able to help me like identify where sometimes emotions are stored in the body and figure out how to release those or how to activate those. Is that kind of kind of the same vein here? Absolutely. We know that we can always again, retrain the way that we think about certain situations, but it's it's a little bit harder when we look at that physical, how to, how do we retrain how our physical response is and and being oh. okay with it. And I'm, I'm sure that does things like unlock maybe repressed emotions or uh, forces people to revisit and reevaluate traumatic situations that might. Absolutely. My particular focus the last 20 years has been with older adults, um, individuals 65 and older. So, wow. uh, which is, has been very, an, a very interesting journey. Because we don't tend to think of, we don't see a lot of older actors, at least we, I didn't <laughs> for a long time. And so, but, but what we find is that there just wasn't the opportunity for, for individuals to create new experiences because they, um, huh. you know, their life 
their life journey. And so through drama therapy, we're, we're able to, to kind of give them that opportunity to create uh, new memories and new experiences and process what they've been through and know that it's okay. What does like a typical session look like? The structure is usually a warm up. We come in, you do the greeting. I I tend to work with individuals who have been traumatized or or getting care within an institution, a residential setting. Um, So I always contract for safety and we do that physically to enter the space just again, just like actors do, we have our warm up, and then we go into our enactment. And that can be really whatever's on the treatment plan. If we're working with anxiety, then we're putting ourselves in anxious situations. And at me as the therapist is the director. So I will will come up with a tense situation and then work through different ways to respond to that. And then as our closing, we kind of process what that was like, and then we shake we shake it off, we de-roll before we exit the session. Oh, yeah. And so hopefully after doing that, uh, the clients are able to really see, hey, that did work, and I can try this in the real world, or they can, between sessions, try it out and come back and process what worked or what do we need to work more on. Do you do this in like group settings or is it like... I usually do. Yeah. 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 Usually about groups of eight to 10. And I've been working a lot with primarily with older adults, but I I have worked pretty successfully as well with adolescent females. So um, yeah. And that's been a lot of fun. I think if they're uh, 14 to 17, they really get into it. Uh, when I first started out, we have in, in drama therapy, you have to do an internship and they put me um, at a maximum, it, it was a maximum security state hospital. Whoa. And, so, and we were at the behavior management component, which is like after you've been kicked out of all the other state hospitals, that's where you went. And we had the drama therapy club. Oh my and, God. Um, <laughs> what, what we would do was if you got your marks or, you know, if you were able to, to maintain behaviors well enough and got points, there was a point system. Then you got to go on to the the drama therapy broadcast. And that's where we had a public service announcement that the patients would write, produce. I mean, we had the theater lights, we had the cameras, spent all day on it. It was an eight hour day. And um, where they would go over like one of the rules. And so it was so fun because even on a unit where people had to write with crayons uh, (laughs) because everything was a weapon, like we've got these like 100 pound lights and here's, here's, here's scissors. And everyone, (laughs) I mean, just minded their P's and Q's. They were so proud. And so it was, it's a really, I mean, we know the power of theater. Oh yeah. Um, and so it's it's really cool in instances like that to like really understand that it's beyond just going to the shows and yeah. um, what we see. I'm glad my life took that that turn. Oh man, um, I'm still kind of taken aback by the fact that they're like, "Hey, unpaid intern, you're doing this for a grade. Go to a maximum security psychiatric ward." Make sure you don't have anything sharp on you. I've had a lot of friends who are uh, musicians. They'll play a bar or something like that. And at the end of the night, go to the bartender with their hand open and go, okay, so where's my cash? And you're like, no, 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 no. You got great exposure. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need exposure. I need to eat. Like there was a, you know, some record producer who's out in Sheridan, Wyoming tonight and going to give me the next big, uh, you know, recording contract. You know, <laughs> it's, it's definitely a know your worth situation. <laughs> that's why I tell all my interns now. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> you're like, oh, you got to. When these eight weeks are over, <laughs> you don't go anymore unless you're getting paid. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's awesome. I'm really glad to hear you're doing that. And I think 
Leading into the topic for today, you know, about drives and, and what makes a person pursue a certain type of behavior, I think, uh, I think this, uh, yeah, this is going to fit pretty well. Are you ready for this? I am. I'm excited. <laughs> so uh, we established that you and I haven't really talked to each other for years. I mean, we went to Casper College together. It's a two-year school and graduated there and kind of went on our own paths. I'll bet that you didn't know that my big show in college was 42nd Street. I did not know that. Now, for those of you who don't know the musical, are you familiar with it, Karen? No. Yep. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay, good. All right. I, know, I know enough to be dangerous, but I've never seen it, and I, I don't know any anything from it. Well, awesome. For those of you don't, who don't know the musical, it has been described as the ultimate backstage musical. Set in the Great Depression, it tells a story of a new musical called Pretty Lady and is reminiscent of a lot of the big musical reviews that were very popular uh, in Broadway before the Great Depression struck. The protagonist is young Peggy Sawyer, who just got off the bus from Allentown, Pennsylvania, and plans to be the next big Broadway star. She's a triple threat in dancing, acting, and singing, and isn't all that unpleasant to look at either. But during the Depression, theater had a hard time competing with this new industry of motion pictures. Plus, in the middle of a Depression, there was no guarantee that Pretty Lady would be a success. In the end, though, as expected, Pretty Lady is a hit. Peggy is set to be the next big Broadway star. However, in the final scene, Peggy gets some cautionary advice from the play's director, a character named Julian Marsh, who I got to play about how New York City can steal a person's heart and soul. Peggy leaves her the party with the cast while Marsh stays on stage to deliver the final number to the audience. It's a reprise of the title song, 42nd Street, which praises that section of New York for being able to make dreams come true when all signs point to failure. It also praises 42nd Street, not so much for the types of plays being performed there, but for the fact that Broadway mixed peoples from all walks of life. Here are the final lyrics. Little nifties from the 50s, innocent and sweet. Sexy ladies from the 80s who are indiscreet. They're side by side, they're glorified. Where the underworld can meet the elite. Naughty, body, gaudy, sporty, 42nd Street. Marsh walks off wistfully and the curtain is dropped. Well, you know, that has aged well because I go to New York quite frequently and that, and my sister lives there and that's exactly how it is today. Oh, yeah. You still feel Maybe that not way. today, but pre-COVID. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. I get into this a little bit later. My first trip to New York was last summer. And I couldn't believe that. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the Mecca for theater, right? Like oh that's God. where, that's where everybody at least wants to go or wants to be on. So at least to see it. Right. At least to see it. I mean, one of the shows that I saw was King Kong. As a musical, in my personal opinion, didn't really hit the mark. There were some things that worked and a lot of things that didn't. It was unbelievable to watch 20-foot puppets move around with 14 puppeteers on each of them. It was unbelievable. And I will never forget it. But that's a type of show that, at this point, one can only expect to see on Broadway. Right. Harry Potter's the same way. Oh my God. Yep. Terrible <laughs> script. <laughs> the yeah. tech is, it yes. takes your breath away. It's amazing. That's just, it. That's just it. We'll get into that though. Okay. So back to this story, Marsh is referencing that section of 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues. Now, while this block has not always been specifically the nexus around which all New York theater is based, 
it cannot be separated from what we now know as, as the New York Theater District, which is all centered around Times Square. Now, if one has never experienced life in the theater district, the story of Peggy Sawyer would just seem like another Cinderella story about a girl making it big in her first shot. But without the super happy ending, Peggy Sawyer's story would not be all that unusual. The original production was directed and choreographed by Broadway legend Gower Champion. The final big dance number of the show was a final play within the play, choreographed as something of a throwback to the golden age of Broadway. It was a ballet and an amazing tap ballet. The ballet told the story of a young woman in the industry who meets a young man in the industry, and these two fall in love. But soon after their love blossoms, he is gunned down on the street and left to die. But rather than grieve, the young girl soon adopts the rhythms of the cruel and apathetic city around her and becomes just another face in the crowd. The curtain falls to thunderous applause and the play within the play becomes a huge hit. So in the midst of this Cole Porter, we're doing cutesy songs, shuffle off to Buffalo, comes this incredibly dark ending to the story. And that's the play that they're working on. Well, it's that balance. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I think, you know, theater is one of the one things that we can go to that we, that we are, are getting that emotion off of what we're seeing on the stage. Right. I mean, we see it in, the, in, in film, but it's not, it's not the same. Right. Like when you go into a room and you can tell when people have been fighting. <laughs> and so if, if we're, if we're watching a show that's all cutesy and fun and we're, then we're, then we just ride that. We kind of get lazy. Oh yeah. So yeah. Be jolted into like, Oh, I can't, you know, not every, you want to make it relatable. I think. Right. But yeah. That, that can be very. And there are people who do that. Like they, they constantly strive to be like, well, the world is awful. So come into our place where you can escape all that. Right. And I don't know how healthy that is. <laughs> Guess it depends on how often you go. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, just like Peggy and the young characters she played in the play within the play, hundreds upon hundreds of young people would travel to New York City to catch their big break, and still do. Before theater became a big business in town, the area around Times Square was known as the place where sailors on leave would be able to purchase the company of a young woman for the evening. <laughs> Vaudeville started to become quite popular, and the completion of the building of the new Amsterdam Theater on 42nd Street in 1903 was one of the signs of a new development in performing arts. The new Amsterdam hosted the Ziegfeld Follies from 1913 to 1927, which allowed performers to remain in the same show for quite some time, so a little bit of job security there. Now, the Follies were full of song and dance, but in some cases... They were specifically remembered for the athletic shape and revealing costumes of the female dancers. Now, these were not burlesque by any means. I think more like the Rockettes. Tall women with very shapely legs and costumes that allowed those legs to be shown. Very Vegas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. So good. Yeah. Again, while these were quite popular, to prudish critics, this just further enhanced the reputation of the area. <laughs> Now, despite these critiques, song and dance shows became popular for quite some time. But with the Great Depression in 1929, the ticket prices for theater became a little bit out of reach for a lot of people. So in the several blocks north of 42nd Street, a number of theaters converted to motion picture houses and were able to find a lot more success than they did with live performances. So 42nd Street, which did not convert right away, its reputation seemed to degrade with this little migration as movie houses rarely showed anything with lascivious content. 
Well, that's not entirely true. Many filmmakers in the 1930s and 40s found a workaround to be able to include more prurient content with films dubbed, air quotes, cautionary films. These were films of educational nature meant to show the results of the lives lived towards vice, and mainly meant as scare tactics. These films could show just about anything they wanted because, you know, they were educational. <laughs> so such titles included Reefer Madness. I remember that. <laughs> yep, yep, we got that one. Here's a couple more. Sex Madness and... I love this. I, I need to look this up. I just I just want to imagine what what this show was. The title is "She Should Have Said No." Oh, ex- a lot of it's dated. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what did she do? I don't know. <laughs> Didn't go to church on Sunday. She should have said no. Soon, these films came to be known under a new name: exploitation films. Now, quite often, exploitation films would focus on a news trend that was still somewhat in the public consciousness. Hence, many films were produced on the dangers of marijuana and the many dangers of not only intercourse before marriage, but in some cases, men marrying women at an age too young to be considered appropriate. That could have been she should have said no. Depends on how young she was, right? Exactly. I mean, really, frankly, you know, a 49-year-old man asking a 16-year-old to marry him, well, that's her fault, right? Which which is very cultural. And, (laughs) you know, when you think of some of what was going on back then. Oh, my God, yeah. I I love that photo of Anna Nicole Smith when she just married that, like, 89-year-old man. Oh, we're really in love. Yeah? She loves something. Okay. I don't think it's him. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe he was a stud. (laughs) Now, in the 30s and 40s, 42nd Street tried to retain uh, something of its former glory. The New Amsterdam did its best to weather the Depression, but eventually it too became a movie theater in 1936. Now, the smaller clubs and theaters around the New Amsterdam, however, they practiced an offshoot of an art form that had been practiced and celebrated in clubs all over Europe. And I hit on it earlier, burlesque. Yeah. Now, for those of you that don't know, a burlesque show at that time would often have one or two comedians as the MCs and a host of about five to ten female entertainers, more like strippers, and the show would be nothing more than a naughty night out with little malice intended. Again, Vegas. <laughs> Vegas. Now, comics like Abbott and Costello and W.C. Fields often perform in burlesque shows, and we wouldn't have female performers like Gypsy Rose Lee and Lily St. Cyr without burlesque. So for those unfamiliar with what, a, what that looked like, a good example is the song Money from Cabaret. Okay, money makes the world go round and they do all kinds of dirty things, but at the end of it, it's it's harmless. Right. Right. I mean, burlesque, at least in the Midwest, is kind of making a comeback as a yeah. it's an art form. It's right. not it's not just gyrating on stage with a pole. It's it's very intentional right. and very athletic. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know what 1920s burlesque looks like, but um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I would dare say though that 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 you know, trying to make a living, you really did want to have something that was different. So right, I, would, right. I would anticipate that the show was of quality. 
Yeah. (laughs) They put thought into it. Right. Now, up until now, 42nd Street, yeah, has a little bit of a seedier reputation, but it doesn't seem all that bad. Little naughtiness here and there, right? Well, evidently, this all changed around World War II. In 1946, New York City decommissioned the bright streetcars on this section of 42nd Street. And it was one of the wider streets, so it had really cool public transport. But they decommissioned those streetcars and replaced them with the much less glitzy and ultimately less efficient buses. So not only was there something of a seedier reputation of the occupants of 42nd Street, but now those people were basically being told by the city just how much the city thought of them. (laughs) Now, and remember, I talked a little bit about those uh, exploitation films. Well, a lot of movie houses on 42nd Street had adopted a ticket-selling model that would keep people in a movie house as long as the patron wanted to be there. This model became known as Grindhouse. <laughs> okay. Okay. Since the movie house would just keep grinding out movies all day. So, because this was the model, the movie houses would often have to show films generally considered to be of lesser quality as they cost considerably less to run than major studio pictures. So, you know, this is where you see a lot of those really bad black and white sci-fi movies and terrible romances. However, some of these films were foreign films from Europe, where the censors were not as strict. Sexual activity, nudity, and more explicit types of violence were often seen in European cinema at the time. So a movie house that could suggest it was offering a wider array of cultural perspectives, rather than just flat out admitting that they were showing films that included boobs and blood. It's artsy. It's artsy. (laughs) I'm getting cultured. It's exotic. (laughs) How do they get the arterial spray? And it really says a lot about, no. Yes, I'm sure those conversations were being had. (laughs) Let's head over to Sardis and talk about what we just saw. (laughs) Starting in the 1950s, this section of 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues was bestowed with a new moniker, the Deuce, as in 42 or 40 Deuce. The connotation was of an area that was filled with people a little less desirable. And the grindhouses on the Deuce basically opened the door to other ancillary businesses to open, such as bookstores that might offer more racy material. Here's a description. Exotic bookstores. Yeah, exotic. (laughs) Exotic. They're just different. They're new and different. We don't just do Faulkner and Steinbeck here. Here's a description of the patrons of grindhouses. Depressives hiding from jobs, sexual obsessives, Inner city people seeking cheap diversions, teenagers skipping school, adventurous couples on dates, people getting high, homeless people sleeping, and pickpockets. And rich people in disguise. Yeah, like, really? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I mean, isn't that how that works? <laughs> False mustache and an eye patch, and I can go watch nudie flicks. I guess, in one thing I read, like a, a panhandler could be on the street and get enough money for a ticket, they just earned themselves like a day in a, someplace warm. Right. A place they could sleep and nobody's going to kick them out. Right. <laughs> you know, and if they could maybe even get enough money for like a bag of popcorn. Right. You just win, brother. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Now, keep in mind, this was relegated to more or less just this one area, even though this type of activity started to spread up and down 8th Avenue as well. 
but just a few blocks north. From 44th Street all the way up to Central Park, Broadway musicals were celebrating the golden age of Broadway. <laughs> you had shows like Oklahoma premiere in 1943 at the St. James on 44th Street. Carousel premiered at the Majestic Theater on 44th in 1945. Kiss Me Kate, Brigadoon, Guys and Dolls, South Pacific. All of these premiered just a few blocks north of the Deuce. And most people who commuted to these performances would have to take public transportation, <laughs> like buses or trains. So it was, it was a, a very cultural experience. Right. <laughs> so like I said, it's almost impossible to go see a Broadway show without being exposed to the right. <laughs> Now, in the 1960s, a camera would become more of a household item than in years previous. And if tourists visited New York and took photographs, their memories of the deuce are indelibly connected to Broadway. <laughs> Right. So for most of the rest of the world, New York City started to become synonymous with smut. And keep in mind, this area also had a lot of office buildings. So for a lot of New Yorkers, the deuce was just another element in the backdrop of their daily lives. But during this time, some further developments started to enhance the deuce. Some businesses began to figure out how to better capitalize on the time that their patrons spent in their establishments. And while grindhouses could keep people entertained all day, some patrons only wanted to see the good parts and be done. Thus, peep shows. <laughs> Whether live or in a private projection booth, peep shows became one of the many colorful businesses that thrived on the deuce. And like I said, I went to New York for the first time last summer. You wouldn't even know. Well, my first trip to New York was 1988. Okay. I have family there. Ooh, okay. Um, so yes. that was our that was that was uh, my first trip. So I was eight year eight or nine. I don't remember a lot because that was a long time ago. <laughs> but I do remember it was it was not what it is today or even twenty years ago. Oh my god! And it was seedier and it was scary and it was like we didn't even I don't even remember making it to the theater district because it was oh, just god. like so overwhelming. It's overwhelming anyway being there for the first time, being from Wyoming yeah. <laughs> with, yeah. with with you know the skyscrapers and everything. But it it was dirty. It was before yeah. the big I don't know Renaissance or whatever. What you know that turned it into what. It it is today. So oh, 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 we'll, we'll get into that. I'm sure we will. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. By the 1970s, the deuce was the spot in New York to seek out sex, hetero or homo, or whatever you wanted. Stepping from the Port Authority bus terminal, which basically opens right into the deuce from 8th Avenue, not only would you see a street full of large, brightly lit, glittering marquees, but here's a basic description of the people or activities that could be seen. Quote, Phony drug salesmen, low-level drug dealers, junkies alone in their heroin-slash-cocaine dream world, predatory chicken hawks spying on underage trade looking for pickups, male prostitutes of all ages, transsexuals, hustlers, and closeted gays with a fetishistic homo or heterosexual itch to scratch. It was common to see porn stars whose films were playing at the adult houses promenade down the block. Were you a freak? Not when you stepped into the deuce. Being a freak there would get you money, attention, entertainment, a starring part in a movie, or maybe a robbery and a beating. <laughs> Again, balance. I mean, that's the culture, right? That, that, that you, that you kind of get into in New York in general. But right. I can imagine, you know, depending on what time of day you were you were there, your risk went up. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I have something uh, about this later in here, but I just okay. like, uh, I've seen a lot of the pictures uh, from that time. And uh, the two movie houses 
on like the Western end, which faces Port Authority, uh, showed like second run movies. So, you know, you'd go in and the movie that won Best Picture uh, is now playing right there. Oh, man, I didn't get a chance to see it. That's cool. And right next door is a peep show and a brothel and (laughs) everything else. You talk about balance. Right. There was no there was no fine line. There was not even a fine line. It was completely blurred. (laughs) Just amazing. Like, put those blinders on your kids. We're going to go see the show, but don't look at anything. Just look at my back. (laughs) I don't want to answer any questions. (laughs) We'll treat our kids like marsupials. Just hug me. Put your head right in my chest. Don't look at anything. (laughs) Now, all of this activity was not going completely unchecked by the New York City government. There were many attempts to ban certain types of materials and activities in public. And police raids would frequently happen in the deuce in which police officers would basically just drive a paddy wagon down the block, park at the curb, and be able to arrest several people just within eyesight. Often, a prostitute could avoid a loitering for the prostitution charge if she or he could prove that they lived in the area. So the police would give the prostitute a housing voucher that was good for 48 hours. If the prostitute got picked up again within those 48 hours, the voucher was just as good. If the voucher had expired or the prostitute just forgot to bring it that night, the prostitute was toast. How much did these housing vouchers cost? Is this how they collected taxes? Uh, No, no. I think it was just like, it was was like a hall pass. Huh. Oh, I'm sure some money exchanged hands. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I think of. Is like, how do we keep this business, this illegal business, legit? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, that's, attacking somebody for their job in a way, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you know, uh, I mean, (laughs) what could you legally call that? I mean, are they, I don't know. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. (laughs) Now, just to give you an example of how many arrests were made, here's a quote from the New York times during the first six months of 1971, Police in the Times Square area made 3,174 arrests for prostitution and 2,847 for loitering for the purposes of prostitution. (laughs) That's 6,000. That's a lot of bail money. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. If you add it. If not, you're just hot, right? Well, here we go. Most of these girls obviously didn't work alone. You find a prostitute, and close by you'll find her pimp. This occupation became incredibly popular among black men in the area as, well, you know, the Civil Rights Act didn't exactly line up jobs for young black men right away. So in a lot of ways, the job was much more desirable and safe than any other kind of illegal activity. (laughs) Plus, They also got the benefit of living the pimp culture, the lavish outfits, the cars, just the prestige. Like they were the big businessmen of the deuce Mm -hmm. (laughs) and everybody knew who they were. Right, And you knew what they were, but if they weren't, if you couldn't prove it, then there's no action, right? Like if they're not, if they're just chilling, then you can't. It's that, it's that pyramid right. of how that business works. Right, right. But of course, you know, it wasn't all about glitz and glam. Like they weren't just money collectors. I mean, the pimp's job was not easy in some aspects. I mean, like you were saying, you know, yeah, that's a lot of bail money. They had to keep their business going. So that was, that had to be taken into account much as a business owner would consider it overhead. Right. 
one huge part of the pimp's job was actually, you know, keeping them, keeping their wards housed and fed. So they had to find a living, they had to find shelter, they had to keep them in clothes that were able to sell the wares, as it were. And not only that, they had to arrange four places for their workers to perform their work. Right. So luckily, the area around the deuce was littered with small hotels and apartment buildings where a prostitute could take a customer for an allotted amount of time. So frankly, there was a lot for a pimp to do besides drum up business and collect money. On top of all of this, one popular characteristic of the deuce at the time, it it became known as the 42nd Street smell. Just about everyone had a different experience of it, but it hung like a cloud over the area. I'm going to do my best to describe it. Frankly, the smell was a combination of rotting garbage, feces, marijuana smoke, unwashed clothing, vomit, urine, and cologne and perfume. Undertones of alcohol, perhaps. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then there's, you know, the alcohol that people spit or throw or, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's the smell. (laughs) Like two porta potties got in a fight in a dive bar. Yes. Now, as I mentioned before, sometimes clever entrepreneurs in the vice trade would find workarounds to these laws to avoid the raids and the mass arrests to occur. So to avoid getting picked up, a lot of prostitutes became adult film stars. But due to the executive orders enacted under the administration of Mayor David Lindsay, more and more women were being picked up for prostitution. So like I said before, you know, you'd have the paddy wagons pull up to the block and you would see the action. They'd be picking up some guy or, you know, meeting with their pimp and giving him money. They they could see it. It started to just become like they'd drive down and go, you, 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 and you get in. (laughs) Didn't matter. So they knew it was being cracked down on. It's now, really just a band aid oh, fix because you're not addressing the main system there. So oh, no, no. You know, it's that disproportionate where we're going to take the low hanging fruit to send a message. So, yeah, here the cops are cracking down more on prostitution by just arresting whoever they wanted to. And so, yeah, the prostitutes were like, yeah, but I'm, I still want to work. So, a lot of these women turned to another industry in which they could continue their practice, but in a somewhat safer environment massage parlors. <laughs> so popular today. Now, these massage parlors would act as something of a front for prostitution. They were brothels, and but they, that's how they were able to cleverly get around the law. They were just offering massages. So if a raid occurred, it would take the police a lot longer to be able to gather up potential lawbreakers. A lot of these massage parlors, you know, had like escape rooms or like, you know, they, <laughs> they had a quick way. out the window. <laughs> yep. So they could ring a bell or, uh, you know, push a button and a light goes off in the room and uh, uh, the the paying customer would be like, oh, okay, got to get out. And, you know, they'd slip out and uh, the girls would go sit in the in the back room and be like, eh, not a really busy night. <laughs> There's no one here. <laughs> <laughs> Just dead. <laughs> Plus, a lot of established businesses in the deuce. We're now involved with organized crime, which made police just a little bit more hesitant to conduct raids with as much frequency. I just love how deep this gets. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody was getting just a little bit of money off of this, and it was such a huge business. I well, mean, and then it becomes just a, a part of the economy where you, if you yes. if, if start to really impact the legitimate businesses. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to step back from the deuce for a little bit and go... So what was going on at Broadway at the time? (laughs) 
This was the heyday of some of Broadway's most innovative musical theater artists, such as Stephen Sondheim, Bob Fosse, and Andrew Lloyd Webber. In the 1970s alone, Broadway saw Sondheim premiere Company, A Little Night Music, and Sweeney Todd. Fosse's choreography was seen in the premieres of Pippin, Chicago, and all that jazz. Weber's star rose and rose through the 1970s with the premieres of Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita. Names, respectable names, were in lights, just like the Broadway legends of yore. But of course, although these plays opened in the blocks north of the Deuce, just a stone's throw away. So really, the lyrics of 42nd Street could not have been more appropriate during the 1970s. I mean, we talk about, like... The 30s through the 60s, it's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, there might be some yucky things going on. But man, you'd get out of Jesus Christ Superstar and go, man, that was really powerful. And go two blocks to get your bus and girls in, in not even hot pants. Uh, right. <laughs> You're going to catch something just walking by. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> coming over to solicit your 15-year-old son, maybe give him his, uh, his first ride for free. Uh So it's all happening right there. And to know that most of the legitimate businesses on the block were controlled by the mob, where the underworld can meet the elite. It's a true melting pot. (laughs) Come to America and be whatever you want to be. It just depends on what part of the city you're in. Now, even though these successes were going on on Broadway, the Broadway community could not ignore the impact that the deuce not only had on business, like you were saying, it does kind of affect the local economy, but it did also affect the reputation of the Great White Way. Pretty much virtually no one in the country wanted to be in the theater district at night. Businesses that depended on the traffic of Broadway tourism saw their businesses virtually die off after 5.30. There were even pamphlets distributed in hotel rooms in the area on how to stay safe in the theater district after dark. And the primary advice about going out was don't. That's crazy. There was one pamphlet that basically had like a hooded skull (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that was the cover. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> the title was something like advice for visiting New York City. <laughs> yeah, hire a new PR firm. Yeah. Like that. Right. <laughs> Maybe that's going a little far. Uh, <laughs> so here's a quote from uh, actress Joan Hackett. This has always been a fairly tacky area, but it's as evil as it can be now. I was propositioned by a girl who looked about 17, and another actress was urinated on by a wino who waited at the stage entrance. Well, it was memorable. I mean, <laughs> um, I don't have a story like that. <laughs> can I get you an autograph? Woo! <laughs> but I also, there, there's that connotation that it's a wino. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't sit on a toilet in that district from what oh you're my, saying. Oh my God. You know, <laughs> I can't remember if I actually put this in here or not, but the room that I stayed in after I started reviewing this, I'm like, oh my God, I stayed in a bang room. <laughs> I'm sure of it. <laughs> it was one of those tenements right there on 8th Avenue, yep. shared bathroom, shared shower. And I was there for four or five days. And I'm like, I can't just go to the bathroom at the place I'm taking the workshop and they don't even have showers. I can't go five days without a shower. Let's see what kind of infections I get. It's a real experience. Yeah. Luckily I was okay. (laughs) Here's another quote from producer and theater owner, Arthur Cantor. 
Just the other day, I got tickets for Sleuth for my little boy and a friend. And the mother of the friend said, I don't want him in that area without an adult. He said, he goes on to say, pornography does not exist in a vacuum. You get the detritus, the refuse that surrounds the porno movies, the prostitutes, the hustlers, the newsstands, which now sell libraries of filth, the sex deviates, the junkies. It's developed to its peak in the last year, 1971. Eighth Avenue has turned into a disease. I also question somebody who's going to take his little boy to see Sleuth. Uh, as, as would I. But again... <laughs> So, I wonder how many legitimate business persons. Oh man. Right. Because mm-hmm. if we cast blame on them, then nobody's focusing on us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Like oh, yeah. this is out of control. Well, what did you do? I went and checked it out. <laughs> I saw it and I was shocked. I'm uh, going again Thursday. <laughs> Just to make sure. So about five years ago, uh, my theater company, Trident, we hosted a classic horror film series at our roadhouse here in Sheridan, the Wyo. I wanted to do one from four different decades, the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, just to see kind of the evolution of, of how film had changed. And, and when a, a, a pretty prominent donor found out we were doing it, he asked the executive director, oh, wow, are you going to do Psycho? And, you know, we thought about it. We're like, yeah, that's a really good movie and probably get a lot of people in, but it's from the 60s. We kind of want to go from the 70s on. And the guy ended up telling this kind of cool story about how that roadhouse used to be a movie house for a long, long time, just like the ones here in this story. Um, And how one of his favorite memories was when his parents took him to see Psycho when he was 10. I mean, I grew up on Nightmare on Elm Street, which I cannot watch today. Right. So I do, I do, I do think that parenting has come a long way. <laughs> it's like that was your choice. That's the movie playing at the movie theater. We're gonna right. go to the movies and see this movie that will terrify you of taking a shower ever again. Right. Or or anything that Hitchcock did, which he was brilliant. But it's like, ooh. <laughs> so. As Cantor suggests, the economy of the so-called legitimate businesses in and around Times Times Square began to wane. Surprisingly, it was found that many legitimate businesses couldn't afford the rent in the deuce because the owners of adult businesses were able to pay at least twice the expected rent to stay open. You've got more than just winos going in. That's a huge business. Well, I don't think I actually put this in here, but HBO did a series on this a few years ago. Is it the deuce? The deuce. I have been thinking about that since we started because yeah. I, I thought it was because they were twins. I had no idea that history existed. Yeah. So now it's, and I started watching it, but then we got rid of HBO. But now I yeah. want to go watch it again. It's, that worth, it's worth it. I just finished the first season and uh-huh. I'm like, God, this is, it, it was so gritty. Like the first couple episodes, I really. Right. It was hard for me to watch. Yeah. Yeah. But then you go, this is a lifestyle. Oh my God. People did actually live like this. It might be over-dramatized a little bit, but I don't know. Okay. Right. Wow. Maggie yeah. Gyllenhaal, is that who that who that actor yeah. was, the actress yeah. was that was like yeah. her own person? And like I just I, I thought, wow, this is yeah, but now it's it's once you said that the 42nd Street was called the this area is the deuce, I thought, I wonder if yeah. this makes sense. There's there are a couple scenes where they are taking out the counts from the the you know the peep show booths. It is like loaded with quarters, just loaded. I mean, they took out 
thousands of dollars from those on a daily basis. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, like you were saying, it could have been people who were rich, but it could have just been people who just got, you know, a roll of quarters and stayed in there all day. Well, yeah, because what makes it, I think part of too, really what makes stuff successful is when it's accessible. Oh yeah. Right. Like, like that's, that's Mm -hmm. where, that's where today's theater has become very challenging to go to when you're talking about $300 a ticket. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. So the adult businesses, because they were able to pay more and they had mob backing who had, you know, consistent cash flow. I mean, what bodega can keep up with a peep show or a massage parlor? Right. But New York theaters, uh, New York's theater district relies on tourists to make its ends meet. And if tourists avoid the area out of fear that there'll be statistics, well, it doesn't do well for anyone. So when does any of this change? <laughs> I mean, you were saying 88, you went and you're like, we avoided certain areas. And, and granted, I had no idea at the time what was happening. It was, yeah. I, I want to say that it might have been, I don't know when Giuliani became mayor. I know that that's mm-hmm. what he was famous for, was turning it around. But do you know, I'm sure you're going to go there. We're getting there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so like I've been saying, I went to Broadway for the first time during the summer of 2019. I flew into LaGuardia just before midnight on a Sunday. I got to my Airbnb on 8th Avenue just after midnight. I weighed my options and decided that, you know what? I'm going to Times Square right now. It's my first time here. I'm a big guy. I've never been a victim of street crime. And I think, you know, I, I must just have some kind of aura about me that they're like, okay, that might be too much of a hassle. I don't know. I puttered around Times Square for about two hours, midnight on a Monday. I was totally fine. And I didn't see any of the reputed nastiness that I had heard of, despite one solicitation for prostitution that was frankly easy to ignore. <laughs> Some girl with a Russian accent, tight dress uh, that you know showed more than it probably should. Sure. Smelled like a candy store. She just goes, "Do you want company?" I'm like, "No, nope, I'm good." <laughs> <laughs> and she just passes passes me by. I'm like, okay. Well, yeah, and you know that's my experience. Even you know, as as being a woman, I tend to not, I tend to not want to venture out too far. But um, I right. feel fine at Times Square. And the last couple of times I've went, I've stayed down at NYU because I had meetings there at, at Washington Square Park, which mm. is fine during the day mm-hmm. and, and um, early, early morning. And then it kind of, yeah. as, as traffic picks up, so does activity. Right. So, right. And, and, you know, you see what you want to see, mm-hmm. but it's hard to not always be on guard. So my last night there, I ended up making a few friends and um, we we stayed out really late. Like, I don't think I got home until four and I was like, <laughs> my my Uber was coming at like nine. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, we were out until four, but it was like a Thursday night. We had, we had met a couple locals kind of, uh, you know, we, we, we bar hopped a little bit. And once, once we got kicked out of the last one where they're like, Hey, we're closing up. We're sitting there down on the street. I want to say it was like 46th. One of our, our, one of my friends that I had made was about 10 years older than I was. And so she's like, I remember New York back in the day, man, like this time of night, where's the party? Let's go to a party. And the guys we were with were like, lady, that's not New York anymore. Uh, We're going home. (laughs) I live right over here. I'm walking. Good night. (laughs) Let's get back to this. In the 1970s, 
the raids and police action continued, mainly per pressure from the various mayors administrations during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Mayor David Lindsay was the mayor who pushed most of the raids in the area in the 70s. And in the 70s, Lindsay offered tax abatements to developers who would build office buildings downtown with the provision that they also built theaters on the bottom floor. Hence, we now have the Minskoff, the Gershwin, and the Circle in the Square theaters. And they became the first new theaters to be built in the theater district since the Great Depression. Oh, that's fascinating. Isn't that cool? But Lindsay was a little bit more interested in pursuing a failed presidential campaign than enforcing the efforts to clean up the streets. Plus, this is so awesome. I love this. During his administration, many lawsuits hit the New York City courts about what types of content could really be shown on screen. So there was a brief time where in a pornographic movie, you could see people being naked. You could see people having sex. You just couldn't see the actual act of penetration. If you did that and it was shown in a movie, the movie house could be closed down. So basically, the adult film industry as a collective became a defendant in freedom of speech cases and won several key decisions that allowed the industry to expand its practices. Was that also around the time that Flint had his? Was he oh, it had to be. It had to be. Yeah, it had to be. Because, well, he's primarily in L.A., I think, right? Right. But I think but, that, you know, once once the Supreme Court rules on something, yeah. like, you really want, you want to get in on that action. <laughs> right. By the end of the 70s, Mayor Ed Koch and Governor uh, Hugh Carey instituted that prostitution should be upgraded from a violation to a misdemeanor. Plus, massage parlors we're now subject to annual health inspections. <laughs> oh shit, we didn't think of that loophole. Right. Uh, there was even a map and I found it, it was so funny. There was even a map that was used as a frequent point of reference for police and health inspectors so that the dens of the vice trade could be easily identified. So like, you know, when you go to New York and they're like, here's a map of all the theaters or here's a map of all the museums. Here's the maps of all the uh, peep shows and uh, massage parlors so that. (laughs) That's where all the tourists are going. That's where all the money is going. I need to buy fake handbags and I need a massage parlor. (laughs) Where's all this happening? (laughs) So needless to say, many of these businesses did not pass health inspection. And with the new open space, the city started to flirt with hotel chains to establish new residences in the area. The insistence of hotel architect John Portman to build a new Marriott Hotel in Times Square was on the table during the Lindsay administration. Now, financial hardships of the city put the project on hold. Basically, the city went broke, so they couldn't go forward with it. But uh, when Ed Koch became mayor uh, in the 1980s, he restarted the project. The plans required the demolition of such classic theaters as the Morosco and the Helen Hayes theaters. But when the hotel opened in 1982 and followed some of the suit of the office buildings downtown, the Marquis Theater was opened on the lower levels of the hotel, which to this day remains one of the most successful hotels in the world. Have you stayed at the Marriott Marquis? I have. Um, Casper, when, when we were in Ca- at Casper, yep. there was a theater trip and we saw uh, uh, Annie Get Your Gun with Bernadette Peters and Tom yep. Wabbit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's right there at the north side of Times Square. So it's, yeah, they're fine. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. <laughs> no. 
Now, this new landmark invited real estate developers to come up with new plans on how to revitalize Times Square. One such plan was CA42, which featured the following, quote, huge office buildings, shopping malls, and a giant entertainment complex with a Ferris wheel and a ride through the sky emulating Disney's Epcot Center. By 1980, however, Mayor Koch was convinced that the project was overly tacky and confident the city could find different investors. Koch described the plan as they wanted to build Disneyland. So he scrapped the idea. <laughs> like that's one of my favorite. Um, I mean, Toys R when Toys R Us was there, they did have that Ferris wheel inside mm. um, across the street from the marquee. And I don't, I know Toys R Us isn't there anymore because it's bankrupt, but um, I'm, I, I'm sure the Ferris wheel still is. I can't remember that. I didn't go into many of the shops when I was there. And that, like I said, it was just summer. Of right, right. No, they're, they're, it, it's not a huge mall, but it's just a, it's a multi-level store, mm -hmm. but there's a, a, it's, it's not like a kitty Ferris. Like it's a decent size Ferris wheel. It's really cool, but I'm sure it's expensive as hell to ride. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Now, in the 80s, other plans were looked at, which were basically described as running a gauntlet because of how compacted the new developments would be within such a short block. These plans would more or less demolish existing historic buildings and replace many of them with huge towering skyscrapers and office buildings. Koch was ready to move ahead with this, but with the onslaught of First Amendment lawsuits, again, from the adult film industry, pretty much put an end to those ideas. I mean, that's all very 80s too, right? Out with the old and in with the yeah. overly consumption. Like we're, we're entering that age of consumption. Right, right. Like I keep thinking oh, when I was uh, writing this part of it, I always keep thinking of RoboCop. Because <laughs> there's that part where they're like, and we're going to introduce, uh, you know, Delta City. And it's like, you know, in downtown old Detroit. So they just demolished Detroit to build these plastic looking buildings, right. right? Now, the vice trade did see quite a decline in the 80s, but it wasn't because of any of this. It was no active government intervention that really did it. Frankly, the spread of the AIDS virus virtually killed the prostitution industry and therefore most of the vice trade in the deuce. Yeah, because that was a huge out like that. That that mm -hmm. was like what we're going through. Mm -hmm. At a smaller level, I don't think it was global, but it was no one knew what was where it was coming from and why it was happening. And right, right. And but they did know it was sex that caused it. Right. Once they figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, maybe I'll just save this money and actually help my kids go to school. Right. Right. <laughs> Plus the development of at-home video devices like the VCR remove the need to visit theaters or peep shows to get a fix. Right. <laughs> so you didn't have to make elaborate plans. You just went to the back room of Blockbuster. Which which I must say, as we've been talking about this, I keep thinking of Equus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I did go see Equus on, on Broadway uh, several years. 2008, I think it was, when, when that happened. And it was so good. Mm -hmm. But and I always remember Tom saying it's so outdated. And I was like, the only part of it that's outdated really is the guy going to the peep show where he finds his dad, right? Right, and yes. Except with that. But the rest of it is all still very relevant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Now, musical theater creators in the 1980s did their absolute best to get tourists back on Broadway. Productions with immense budgets, spectacular design, and frankly, smart marketing, all designed to be big crowd-pleasing shows, brought some tourism back, but not much. Shows like 
Cats, Phantom of the Opera, Les Mis, and Miss Saigon. By 1984, the average budget for a Broadway musical was $3 million, which calculates to $7.5 million today. So it's not entirely strange to see that there was some potential for expansion. Even so, these productions didn't do, just didn't do enough to support an entire arm of the industry. I mean, you also had the uh, I Heart New York campaign start around this time, and that drew people in. And I, I, I tell you what, Karen, like when I went there, I, I have this thing about when I visit a big city, but I'm not able to go to a baseball game or a basketball game. I still want to get something from like the local team, sure. but I'm not a Yankees fan. So I go downtown and, and into Times Square and I'm like, I'm trying to find a Mets cap. Do you know how hard it was to find a damn Mets cap? Yep. You got to go out. You got oh. to go to Brooklyn. Yeah. And I like, I finally found one downtown. There was like a, you know, a sports memorabilia store, but everything Yankees, 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 Yankees. I'm like, you have a hockey team and a basketball team. Yeah, they suck, but they're still your teams. (laughs) And where's football stuff? Where's the Giants or the Jets? Come on. Nope. Yankees, Yankees, Yankees. Everything's Yankees. And it was so funny. Like I made an effort to find little places that weren't chains to go eat at and everything. You know, I popped over to Hell's Kitchen a couple times and went to some cool places. But I remember like sitting in uh, like a little coffee shop in Times Square and waiting for my food. And you just see all these people like pulling Yankees hats out of a plastic bag. And they're like, look, I'm a fan. You're like, no, you're not. (laughs) You don't belong here. I even got some Knicks socks, but. Okay. So back to theater. (laughs) So most theaters in the eighties, when these big shows weren't really bringing in the crowds, I mean, they, they stayed for a long time. Like cats ran forever. Phantom is still running. Les Mis ran forever. Uh, 42nd street ran. God, I want to say like 11, 12 years. And then it was redone in 2000, something like that. They just weren't bringing things in. And so if they stayed in one place, all the other places had to come up with something too. What they came up with was reviews and then concerts from well-known names of, of old Broadway to bring back at least a local crowd. But of course, the impact on advancing the art were easy to see. In 1985, three categories at the Tony Awards were dropped simply because the year didn't yield enough possibilities to even have the category run. These were the categories. Best Actor in a Musical, Best Actress in a Musical, and Best Choreographer. Wow. That's sad. Right? So what really made the Deuce the place it is today? Well, one development came in the form of the Marriott Marquis Hotel. However, in the early 90s, New York City's Municipal Art Society took it upon themselves to retrofit all of the buildings of Times Square to make them more attractive. So it was like a, a, a refurbishment project, as it were. But it was to make them more attractive, not just for tourists, but mainly for everyone, so that new businesses would be attracted to the historical aspect of Manhattan. The primary architect of that project was Robert Stern. Stern had some close ties to Disney. I wondered when we were going to come full circle. (laughs) And once that connection was established, history began to be rewritten. Now, Disney had seen some success with its musical Beauty and the Beast, which premiered at the Palace Theater in 1954. But it had long been interested in opening another stream of revenue on the Great White Way. 
So under the administration of Mayor David Dinkins, an uh, an initiative called the New 42 begun with intentions to get Broadway out of the ugliness associated with the deuce and attract families once again. Now, while Dinkins had planned for the Victory Theater to be the central point of this initiative, which is right next to the theater where Harry Potter is, the new Amsterdam Theater became a property of interest, and many producers and investors were solicited the property. Hal Prince, <laughs> producer, director, theater owner, uh, he was offered the new Amsterdam Theater. But while waiting for an initial tour of the abandoned space, he, quote, witnessed a drug deal and a sex act in the five minutes he was waiting in front of the theater building. (laughs) He really got the whole experience. Yes. (laughs) I mean, a smart developer would have said, and that's exactly the kind of thing we want to avoid here. And you could make that happen. Right. Right. You know, actually, that's what I was thinking. Like, this is the whole reason we're doing this. Right. You know what you're getting into. Right. Unless you didn't listen to this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. But he, uh, he, he scrapped the idea as soon as he saw that. He's like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't want that. Another visit was a little different. This was the visit of then CEO of Disney, Michael Eisner. And whereas others did not see worth in renovating a space that most saw as dilapidated and worth condemning, Eisner saw it as a space of potential. But it has to be taken into consideration that Disney wanted to have a long-term commitment in a building rather than have to deal with the middleman of a theater owner or corporation, such as the Schubert or Nederlander organizations. Both of these entities had been on Broadway for years, but it would seem that Disney wanted to earn that level of clout without having to wait. So with full control of a theater, more profits can be made by the corporation overall. That's Disney. That's Disney, and definitely Disney under Eisner. Very much, yes. <laughs> and he was the creative. Oh, yeah. Do you have um, Disney Plus? Yeah. Watch the Imagineering. Have you watched that? Oh, no. I, that's been suggested to me so it many is, times. It is so good. It is. Mm. I've watched it several times. It's fascinating, mm. but it does tell, A, it's, it's creative, but it does go into Eisner, how they built Disney during that time. But it's, mm. that'll, that'll jumpstart you. Ooh, okay, okay. It's good. He's, they're very, like, he was always, they said that that he was always the one that was like, let's do this. Like, but the creative teams brought back web engineering and said, you, the, the Imagineers need to run the show. And then the money guy was like, yeah, we gotta, we gotta balance this. You can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't, okay. so I think that you probably, we if that other guy had come and, we probably wouldn't have what we have today. Oh, yeah. Corporations on theater. But. Right, right. So Eisner, the <laughs> the clever creative, was able to cut a deal with City Hall in a series of clever negotiations to make Disney the long-term tenants of the new Amsterdam. The full renovation project would initially cost $32 million in 1994, which would be about $80 million today. Disney actually committed... 8 million and the rest was covered by the city from loans to Disney that were I th- it was uh, extremely generous an APR of 3%. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I think at that time that was about 24 million. 24 million was going to be paid back to the city from Disney in loans at an APR of 3%. Wow. Uh, and I'm going to talk about uh, their profits here in a little bit. So <laughs> I mean they go mm, 21 fine. The term of the lease would expire in 49 years, which means Disney was able to establish tenancy until April 2043. Oh, that's fascinating. I always wondered. 
I always wondered. <laughs> like, I, I didn't look up, like, you know, like the Schubert is like, right, uh, no, it's up on 44th, but um, they call it, it's the Schubert and it, it, it's there. I have no idea how long it is, but pretty much all of the buildings are owned by the city, but they're just leased out to different, right. different organizations. But, you know, you think about stuff like that, like, you know, a, a, a small business, you know, they rent their space, but, you know, how long do they have to sign a lease for? Is it a year-to-year thing? I don't know. But <laughs> Disney saying, okay, we're going to come in and we're going to do theater here for the next 50 years. <laughs> well, and I wonder, too, if that doesn't help from keeping, you know, it's, it's like a rent control thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah somebody in there that's doing really well like the first thing that happens is you jack up the rent and then you collapse the business like we see that all the time in small towns right 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 that's part of that not not that well disney might be hemorrhaging money now but typically (laughs) i've been to a couple of their shows they're full even though yes however eisner was still somewhat concerned about the nightlife The mayor at this time was someone we've seen in the news quite a bit recently, Rudy Giuliani. So, yeah, um, Eisner and uh, uh, Giuliani met several times, and they wanted to make sure that Eisner wanted to make sure this project would work. So he told this little story. I had a little bit of a concern about the adjacent nightlife, and Giuliani looked me in the eye and he said, it'll be gone. And I said, Mr. Mayor, you know there is the American Civil Liberties Union, and they're not just going to be gone. He said, look me in the eye. I said, okay. He said, they will be gone. Scared me. I guess they were going to be gone. So (laughs) that, and we said yes. I don't want to know how. I don't need to know how. (laughs) I'm guessing it wasn't all legit. You know, uh, things aren't stacking up. He's a man of perseverance. Now, He's got that going for him. <laughs> let's just take a moment to remember that Giuliani's claim to fame before entering politics was that he was the U.S. attorney who basically took on the mob in the 1980s and won. Right. He was the inheritor of a declining crime rate. So without the big bosses of the mob on the streets, the declining prostitution trade, and a reducing crime rate anyway, Giuliani was more or less able to keep his word. Right. One quote that I read, and I I know I read it in my research and I couldn't find it again, but it it was from, uh, I believe it was a police official who said, you know, the thing is with prostitution, it's basically like pushing your thumb on mercury. You press it down and it just spreads. Right. So, you know, it might not be focused in one place. So now there's little pockets of it here and there. And which makes it more manageable. If it's out of sight, out of mind, because right. then it's not, on, it's not on the radar. Right. And plus, like I said, with the mob out of the way, you know, I mean, so then you have low level people who probably can't support themselves if they get picked up a couple times. Right. So they right. go, you know, turn in their application at Kmart now. Now, in fact, like, like you were saying, Giuliani was the mayor who was credited with cleaning up the streets. But it was the acts of several prior administrations and gradual changes that made the most impact. Sure. It's not like he just took office and, you know, opened his shirt and there's a Superman sign. Superman. <laughs> <laughs> All official pornography stores in the Deuce were closed by November 1995. And by March 1996, most of the adult use stores in the Deuce were out of business. So 
Work began on renovation. The aim of the new 42 was to transform the Deuce into something more family-oriented. So like we've been saying, I think the Las Vegas Strip. It's very family-friendly, even though you know there's stuff going on behind closed doors. There's roller coasters and M&Ms and every chain store, and they're huge. Oh, look at the Bellagio fountains. Disney was not the only company granted authority to spruce up the Deuce. Disney had an MOU with the city and the state to renovate the new Amsterdam only, which is near the eastern end of the south side of the block. A group called Forest City Ratner was given an MOU to revitalize several of the buildings just west of the new Amsterdam, and their agreement was to construct one of the largest multiplex movie houses in the country, as well as to build a Madame Tussauds wax museum, both of which still occupy those spaces today. I don't remember seeing it last. I think I kind of know the general area that you're talking about, but I don't go to, I don't go to Times Square to watch movies. (laughs) No. I know people live there and want to, but. (laughs) Another group, Tishman Urban Development Corporation, simply known as just Tishman, was granted an MOU to develop the Northwest corner from 8th Avenue to the middle of the block. This MOU included plans to build what they called an E-Walk or electronic walk, which was to feature an 860 room hotel and a 200,000 foot retail and education center with a facade that would feature 10 to 12 well-lit super signs. This is where you've got Cold Stone Creamery and I think a Chevy's like Tex-Mex or something like that. As for Disney, they were able to open the new Amsterdam in 1996 and premiered the Lion King there in 1997. There it stayed until 2006 when it was moved two blocks north to the Minskoff, where it was still in production. Once The Lion King moved out, Disney premiered Mary Poppins at the New Amsterdam, which ran there from 2006 until 2013. The theater shut down again for further renovations to accommodate for the production of Aladdin in 2014, which is still running in the New Amsterdam today. The week of August 10th, 2014, Aladdin broke the Broadway weekly box office record with a total of $1,602,785. Isn't that crazy? One week. I mean, it's great that people are experiencing theater. Yeah. But it comes at a cost, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not like they're taking a chance on something. Right. You know? I mean, well, Aladdin is a very safe show. Right. And everybody knows it. So I actually went uh, last time I was there and saw Studio 54 has a theater now. Mm-hmm. which I don't, being in it was kind of surreal, but um, <laughs> it was the uh, lifespan of a fact. Oh, and yeah. they, they specifically said the reason that we're here is to get new playwrights because Broadway is so commercial. And yep. they're like, we need that because we need, we need to have a balance, again, a balance. Mm-hmm. But it was like, oh, this is an original play. And the good actors were in it that I enjoyed watching. But it was, it was like, you know what? There really isn't a lot of new playwrights, a lot, a lot of new funding coming for, for new, new stuff. You're oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And in my opinion, it wasn't until we got Hamilton that musical theater composers and, and lyricists yeah. started going, oh, we can do new stuff. Right. I agree. And then we get things like Dear Evan Hansen and Book of Mormon. Uh, Book of Mormon. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, we had we had some things. Now, as I mentioned earlier, most businesses uh, couldn't afford to rent space on the Deuce or in Times Square. But with most of the adult businesses closed for good, well-known franchise businesses began to pop up all over the Great White Way, and street crime was almost gone from the theater district. So what did this do to original musicals? Well, The Lion King featured music and lyrics by Elton John, 
Talk about a selling point. Now that Broadway was becoming a family-friendly notion for travel, Broadway was able to afford bigger and bigger budgets and hence bigger and bigger stars or creative teams. But the productions that would sell would have to have a name or a title attached to them. So either big name or a property that was well-known. And while there were some original concept musicals that were able to garner some attention, they were easily drowned out by big box musicals with enormous budgets, the likes of which one can only see on Broadway. So when thinking back to the lyrics of the musical and title song from 42nd Street, dreams do still come true on Broadway, but no longer does the underworld meet the elite. Unless you consider the marquee two doors down from the New Amsterdam to be either the underworld or the elite. Two Doors Down is a McDonald's restaurant, and the marquee for the restaurant is twice as large as that of the New Amsterdam. And that's the story of the deuce. That's crazy. <laughs> so I struggle with this a little bit because it, it was a part of the culture. It was an understood thing. You'd go to Broadway and you might get hit up by a pimp who's just looking for somebody to, you know, fill his pocket that night. Right. But at a cost. I've been talking with a lot of people about this and I'm going, yeah, it was a culture. It was a thing that people did, but is it a culture we really wanted around? Well, and you almost have the same, the same, a similar culture. I think of the people that are dressed up like Elmo and Captain America. <laughs> And you're and and if you're unassuming, if you don't know what's going on, mm -hmm. you're posing with this person, and then they want five, ten dollars. Right. And so you know, it's it's a it's a it's it's still a solicitation. Right. It's not illegal by any means. Right. Uh, but it's 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 a so it's a very I think you've just kind of replaced a this it's a similar behavior, but you've just kind of replaced the vice. So the vice still exists. It's just a different vice. I think so. I mean, yeah. I think. But I think you know when you're going there that that it's a different it's a going to be a different experience. Right. But I mean, I definitely I want to feel I don't ever feel safe when someone's in my bubble. I think that's coming. You know, oh. Wyoming we have vast bubbles. Right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you live in Kansas. I mean, that's still in the plains. Absolutely. Know. And so it's but you you kind the culture just like you said it just kind of shifts and you have an idea of what you i mean we know that that stuff still ex homelessness exists drugs exist right uh, uh, pickpocketing you all you always have that opportunity to to come across all that but i think that what what times square has effectively done and the theater district is said this is going to be your bubble where we're going to decrease as much of that as we huh. can now, whatever happens to you from the time you leave this bubble to get to your hotel, not our problem. <laughs> it's there. But it, you know, I think you're right. That mercury, that spread, everything's yeah. there and it's low key. And I think you could probably find it if you are looking for it. But that brings me to something. And I'm not trying to end with shaming you on anything here. But uh -huh. your suggestion to me when I visited uh, Times Square was to go to Junior's. Oh, uh-huh. Get some cheesecake. And it was uh, after a show, I go down and I get a cheesecake and uh, I think I had like uh, a rum and coke or something with it. So I'm sitting there and I strike, a, uh, strike up a conversation with the bartender. She tells me, oh, she lives uptown. She's off in like an hour and she's going to go home right away. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. So if you were to stay here then, where would you go hang out? And she told me about 
it's an old converted like uh, church. Oh, cool! <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, uh, I said, "Oh, yeah, I've seen that." Okay, so I I I, I go down there one o'clock in the morning, busy as hell. Uh, but I go in, there's these nice ornate columns and frescoes and paintings. I mean, they basically converted it and refurbished it. So it was a cool hip bar, but it was, you know, it had religious origins. And so I'm sitting there for a while. The bartender brings me a drink menu. I look at it for a minute. I go, I'll take that one. Thank you. Within about two minutes of having that drink, a woman sits next to me, t-shirt and jeans, has a pretty thick Eastern European accent and just wants to start up a conversation. And, and we chat for a while, find out she's a medical student. She has studied massage therapy. You know, she finds out, oh, you're from Wyoming. You're here in a workshop. You, you're in education. Oh, cool. Well, that must be stressful. Well, no, I'm here in Broadway. I'm having a great time. She's like, well, you know, I could probably help you with that. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, she solicited me a little bit. And and so I'm like, hey, let's let's play around. Okay, fine. So I said, all right, are, what are we talking about here? She's like, well, okay, it's an hour. I'm like, okay, and how much is that? Uh, $350. <laughs> and I'm like, it's, it, and it's just a massage. Well, it could be whatever you want. So I, I look at her and I said, no, I'm sorry. I don't even have $350 to spend. And even if I did, I'm not going to do that. So right. Uh, right. You know, and hey, I'm sorry if I wasted your time. You spent a lot of time here talking with me. I mean, we took <laughs> 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> and then it finally came down to that. So uh, finally, she's like, okay, well, thanks for being honest and took off. <laughs> and I'm just like, did that just really happen? <laughs> I look at the bartender and I go, do I just have a sign on me or something? That's two nights in a row I've been asked. Like, I didn't think I looked like I was from out of town necessarily. Uh -huh. So I'm walking back to my room and then I go, oh my God. When she came in, she shook the bartender's hand and that had to be a passing of money because the bartender saw Chumpo and went, oh, we've got a John for you. Yep. Right. And then I started thinking about it and I'm like, that damn girl at Junior's. <laughs> oh, yes. He had to be in on it too. So... I mean, wow. I always ask my Uber drive, like, where would you eat? But I've never thought about <laughs> that network. Right. I'm like, that was so clever. Like that girl, $350. Well, she probably kept a hundred of it for the hour and she had to give some to the bartender. Right. What a crazy deal. So thanks for uh, sending me to juniors. And now I have that cool story. You're welcome. Well, and the cheesecake was delicious. It was delicious. <laughs> Oh man. Oh. That's crazy. But I mean, it's there it's, and it is what it is. I mean, I don't, I, I definitely recognize that that's, that's the only way some people can survive, but right, right. it's also, you know, it has its, it's, it's dark sides too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like you were saying, it is about a balance, I would say, you know, and, and maybe that's what happened in the seventies. It was getting too much. Yeah. Was, like I said, it was associated. It, it had a smell. It had a signature smell. <laughs> when you go to like an Asian district in town, you're like, oh, wow, that's the cooking. Right. <laughs> right. But this was like, oh, yeah, that's where the filth lives. Yep. Yes, absolutely. But but again, like you were saying, but what's the cost? Now we have I mean, I can't put on a show in my small scale business, right. the, the scale of like what is written on the page for Frozen the Musical right, or Shrek. 
as soon as I saw Shrek was going to be a musical, I'm like, cool. In 10 years, we're going to get 8,000 shitty high school productions of this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Broadway. When we look at, when we look at um, what, what shows we're going to see, because try as I might, every time we go to New York, it's like, I'm not going to see a show. But um, it's like, what can't I see in community theater? And so, you know, things like Spider-Man, which I would have never have seen, but it had just (laughs) opened. And um, and of course, now that's where Harry Potter is. And they've done such a wonderful job with the deck. But um, Book of Mormon, you're never going to see Book of Mormon on on a high school stage or community. Oh, my God. So those shows, it's like. And, and and we do try to make time too for those smaller shows, those those new and original. But it's it's hard because you you know there's a lot of talent to go around, and at the end of the day, it's like it's a name draws me in. If yeah. there's an actor I want or an actress I want to see, like I'm right. gonna go see that show, whether it's like them just sitting on stage barfing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay more to sit up front if they're good looking. Um, but, <laughs> You know, but there's still something to be, again, it's the experience, you're paying for whatever experience you want. Right. So if you you want that off-Broadway experience, I think that those theaters are going to thrive. I'm interested when COVID ends. Right. What changes? Right. As we go through this new renaissance, because after the plague comes the renaissance, what's going to happen? Because not all those shows are going to recover and the talent may or may not. Well, and Frozen, uh, Frozen was at the St. James, it had to close. Right. So, right. you know, I mean, but at the same time, that's Disney. They're going to be fine. <laughs> right. right. They're, 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 they're allocating because their parks are, right? It's the ecosystem of how that business is ran. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, I think it's okay to be simpler. I think if you're walking into, if I'm walking into a show, again, I'll go back to Harry Potter where the script was terrible. I did not want to see it. I read <laughs> it. I, this is crap. My husband's like, no, we got to go. They, mm-hmm. they said it's great. And I was like, whatever. And I, I was just like, I forgot about how bad the script was because I went there and it was totally immersive. Whereas I can also go to a plane show, lifespan of a fact, that mm-hmm. didn't have a lot of tech and the acting was superb and I enjoyed it just as much. Right. In a right. smaller intimate theater. So I, I think that it, it comes down to if people are going to do their craft, do it well. Right. And the audience yes. will come. Yes. I'll come. Yeah. As long as I have money, I'll go see theater. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll end on this story. One of the shows that I got to see there was The Prom. And I haven't watched the Netflix version of it yet. And I'm kind of hesitant to because of my experience with The Prom. Yeah. Now, I was there. Uh, I was part of, uh, a part of a workshop. So we didn't get to choose the shows that we saw. But they got us great tickets in, in, in prime seating. And after every show, we got a Q&A with maybe some creative team or even some of the actors that had just been on stage. It was really cool. So we go and talk to uh, some of the people for the prom. And on uh, one, uh, they talked about, hey, we just heard that Netflix is doing this. Are any of you going to be involved? And they went, no, we didn't even get asked. I mean, you know, when you when you already assemble a cast of like Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep and James Corden and Andrew, Andrew Reynolds, it's like, okay, well, we got what we need. But well, that was Phoebe Newworth in Chicago. She wasn't asked to do yeah. Chicago, right? right. They right. went to the other two. Yep. Now, here I am. You know, for those of you who don't know about the prom, it's about a, a girl in Indiana who uh, is lesbian and she wants to take her girlfriend to her senior prom. The whole town loses its mind and tries to figure out clever ways to make sure that the lesbian can't take her girlfriend to prom. 
So these, you know, has been Broadway stars come to this town and it's their, their uh, campaign to get a little bit more fame and notoriety, but really they're helping the girl out. So at the end of the first act, a little bit of spoilers here, if you haven't seen it, the, the PTA of the, of the high school where the girl attends, they, they, they say the girl can have a prom because there's been like a law that says they, they have to have a prom. They can't just cancel it. So they invite the girl to a prom and she shows up and no one else is there because they have secretly organized another prom for all of the, the straight kids to go to. So the girl is like heartbroken. That's the end of act one curtain falls. And now here I am, I have made friends around me and told everybody I'm from Wyoming, which apparently all they can associate Wyoming with is Matthew Shepard. I saw the end of that and I'm like, whoa, that's, that's kind of familiar, but it's been a while because God, Karen, I have been to proms in Wyoming since then. And I have seen same sex couples go to prom and no big deal is made about it. So everybody turns around to me and they're like, was that like what you lived through? I'm like, no. (laughs) And so when we talk to the uh, creative team about it. We asked them, how long has this been in development? And they're like, well, it's been, uh, you know, I think we got our first workshop 10 years ago. And I'm like, well, there it is. This is so behind the times. And, and, and somehow it got enough cred or, you know, backing to push it to where it is today. Right. So I'm like, Ugh, okay, well, now I don't have as much of a rosy memory of the prom. It was cute. It was just out of date. <laughs> Well, and that, I think for, for anyone who, who is listening, who, you know, is, is a playwright or is a workshop, goes into workshop, it's, it's a lot of these things take a long time to get to where they're at. And they oftentimes are aged. And so I think that that's the importance of period pieces. Like if it was set in the 80s, it probably would have been very applicable. Right. Um, I've not seen it. In some, in some communities, it probably works. <laughs> right, right. But, but they're maybe not the one that they set it in, right? Right, right. But it also, it, it can go without saying, we can understand that uh, the theater industry, especially in New York, is fairly uh, uh, left-leaning. And so, you know, that was just another one of their opportunities to champion a cause that they had felt really strongly about. And yes. Social justice, which, which, is, a, which is now a clever marketing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Back it up, right? <laughs> yeah. Here's your LGBTQA plus uh, musical that you can see on Broadway. Right. right. But we're not going to have any other resources to, yeah. which, which those talkbacks are important. And that goes, we do that a lot in drama therapy. When I was at K-State, if there was a, um, especially if there was like a Paula Vogel play, <laughs> how I learned to drive or something like your therapist would come in and do a, a, a talk back afterwards, because for some of these students, it was their first experience with any like triggering content. And so those, those opportunities were not just to have the technical aspects, but like, does anybody need to talk to get a referral to, you know, (laughs) therapist? (laughs) And so, um, because they can do that again, um, we don't, we don't recognize how we're going to, to respond to the, to what we're being presented with when we're in the room with it. Right. You know, we can't push pause you can't push pause on live theater. Well, you can. <laughs> okay. there are ways to stop a play. But <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Um, right. <laughs> well, you never know what you're walking into either. Right. Um, what's going to be supported is what the culture supports. And right. so if there's a safe way, a safe 
quote unquote way to um, experience something new. Um, for some people, that's going to be their only acknowledged experience of, right. of an LGBTQ right. plus. Um, I saw a play with a gay girl in it once. So I know about it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, there we go. That's the deuce. Karen, thank That's you so awesome. much. I, that, that was, you're right. You ca- I was really nervous at what you were going to pull out. <laughs> but but I was, it was really cool. I'm, I'm really glad that we, because now I'm going to visit that in a whole new way. Right, right. And you'll go down and stand on 42nd Street and maybe see a whore and go, you go get him, girl. <laughs> <laughs> or juniors. You know, it's like, who's among us? <laughs> it was the what are <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, that'll do for today. Karen, thank you again so much. And we'll see you on the next episode of Euripides Humanities. My name is Aaron Odom, and I'll catch you at intermission. Hey friends, this is your host Aaron Odom coming at you again. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode, and if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you pick this podcast up, or go ahead and like, share, subscribe, all the cool stuff you do with podcasts. We are Trident Theater, that's T-H-E-A-T-R-E. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at our website, www.tridenttheater.com. Once again, this is Aaron Odom. And we try to get a new episode out every two weeks. So hope to see you again in a fortnight. Good.